If you will, please uh, turn with me to Micah chapter 1. Micah chapter 1. I know it's been some time, but last time I was with you, we had preached from Micah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Um, today, we're going to continue that series and go through Micah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Uh, so let's read Micah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria as an heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with, st- with the fire, and all the idols thereof I will lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable. For it is come unto Judah. He is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the preaching of his holy and infallible word. Well, we've, we've all heard that expression, out of sight, out of mind. It's common to us all, really. It's, it's something that we've all experienced in some way. Uh, it makes me think of, of my kids when Tiffany and I go to clean their rooms. We'll sometimes come across a toy or something that they haven't seen in quite some time. And until they see us try to get rid of it, it's never come, come across their minds. They haven't thought about it. They've forgotten about it. But once they see us try to get rid of it, it's like it's the most important thing to them again. And all you children might have some familiarity with this. Maybe you've lost a toy or a book or a piece of clothing, um, and, and you forgot about it. It never really crossed your mind. You never really thought much about it at all. But when you found it, Suddenly, it became important to you again. That's what we mean by out of sight, out of mind. As long as you don't see something, you never really think about it, and you start to forget about it. And while that's not such a big deal when it comes to toys or books or clothes, think about how terrible this is when it comes to God. As you know, children, from from our catechism class, God does not have a body like men. You can't see God. You can't see him with your eyes. You can't touch him with your hands. You can't hear him with your ears. 
But just because you can't see him or touch him or hear him doesn't mean that you can forget about him. But if we're honest with ourselves, in the weakness of our flesh and in in the fallenness and sinfulness of our minds, we often forget about what we can't see. So out of sight, out of mind applies not only when it comes to toys and books and clothes, but it applies when it comes to God himself. So we often have to stir up our hearts to remember to think upon holy things. We often have to be intentional to consider the things of God. And so often throughout the Psalms, you'll see David stirring himself up to praise God and to think about God. Just think about that beautiful introduction to Psalm 103. I love the way the Scottish Psalter translates it. It says, O thou my soul, bless God the Lord, and all that in me is, bestir it up his holy name to magnify and bless. David is stirring himself up up and encouraging us to stir ourselves up. To, to think about God, to praise God, to rejoice in all the benefits and the blessings that God has given to us. You see, it's so easy for us to forget about what we can't see. But we can never forget about God without there being devastating consequences. And so Micah, he comes as a prophet to the people of God to remind them about who God is. You see, they had forgotten about God. They turned aside and started following the ways of the world. They they had false worship. They had idols. They, They practiced injustice. And Micah stands before them all and says, Repent! Turn from these evil ways, or God is going to destroy you. That's the message we have in our text this morning. We'll consider it in four parts. First, we see the call in verses 2 through 4. Then the culprits in verse 5. The calamity in verses 6 through 7. And the cry in verses 8 and 9. So we see the call in verses 2 through 4. Micah says, Hear all ye people. Hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. And let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. This is a general call to all the world to pay attention to the work of God. Micah's telling us, and he's telling all the world, that when God speaks, we must pay attention. When the Lord comes forth, we ought to stand in fear of him, and we ought to turn our heads to witness his power and glory at work before us. Now, our text here is is speaking in in somewhat human terms here. Uh, Micah refers to God as if he sits in his heavenly temple and only comes down to earth when he's provoked. But we know from other places of scripture that this is what's called anthropomorphic language. Micah is attributing unto God human characteristics 
to aid in our understanding. God is, of course, omnipresent and omniscient. He's everywhere, and he knows and he sees everything. There's no place that you can go to escape God. He knows all things. He hears all things. He sees all things. Hebrews chapter 4 says, There is no creature that is not manifest in his sight. All things, everything, is naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows your every thought. He hears your every word. He sees your every deed. You have no ability to hide from him or to hide any of your sins from him. And what Micah is declaring here is that although the Lord may be out of sight and out of mind from the perspective of the world, the world is not out of the sight of God. He sees all the sins that are going on, and he's coming forth to hold the world accountable. And when he comes, he's going to tread upon the high places of the earth, those those places that were thought to offer the, the greatest defense against attack. The Lord's going to tear them down. And the whole world is going to shatter when he comes. The mountains are going to melt like wax. The valleys will burst forth like water. There's nothing in this world that can defend you from the wrath of God. He sees the sins of the world, and he's going to execute his justice. And the fact that he sees and knows all things, it makes him an infallible witness against the sins of men. God doesn't punish without just cause. He knows the very depths of your heart. He knows the sins that you commit in the shelter of your own mind. And any punishment from God is completely just. And as a just judge, he will execute the penalty that the sinner deserves. This ought to make us tremble. Just think about how ashamed you'd be of yourself if the thoughts of your mind and and the longings of your heart were broadcast before the eyes of men. All those secret thoughts you've had about other people. All those things you've thought about doing to other people. What if they were on display for all the world to see? You'd be struck with a sense of fear and shame. And you'd have to beg forgiveness from even your closest friends and family members. But now think that all those thoughts lie open before the eyes of God. He sees and he knows them all. And he promises to execute judgment against them. Should we not tremble? Should we not beg for his mercy? You may notice that in our day, the world will happily embrace the promises of God. The world will like and share and tweet the verses like all things work together for good and I know the plans I have for you and so on. But they avoid the threats of God's judgment for the sins of men. They'll take all the promises and avoid all the threats. And in the church, 
we tend to be able to embrace the promises more earnestly than we're able to tremble at his threats. But there's a very real and serious threat made by God against the sinner. It's not a threat to be ignored, and it's not a threat to be mocked because it seems to never come. It is a guaranteed promise of judgment. The Lord will come forth, and the Lord will judge the sins of men. But the world hears this and says, where's the grace in that? Where's the love and the mercy of God in that? The mercy and the goodness of God is found in the fact that he's patient with us. And he sends forth a warning before he comes. God graciously sends forth prophet after prophet, preacher after preacher, pastor after pastor, to declare his judgment and to preach and to plead with sinners to be reconciled with God. We have Micah preaching here for some 40 years to the people. And Isaiah is preaching the same message at the same time, declaring judgment, but extending hope if only people would turn and be reconciled to God. And it's only by the grace and mercy of God that he's provided a way for us to be reconciled to him at all. You see, God's declarations of judgment are never an end in themselves. They're the means that God uses to cause us to repent of our sins and to turn to Christ in faith. As you read through the book of Micah, you'll see just how clearly Micah points to the Savior, Jesus Christ, the one in whom true hope is found. But Micah begins by by he begins his preaching by telling the whole world that the Lord sees their sins and is coming to execute judgment against them. And up to this point, God's people are happy. This is what they like to hear. Remember, the, the, the descendants of Abraham were a presumptuous people. They thought because they came from Abraham that they had nothing to worry about. And so when they hear that God is coming, they think that it's to their advantage. They hear about God coming to judge the world, and they think he's going to judge the pagans, and they applaud this kind of preaching. But then in verse 5, there's, there's a turning point. Micah preaches here like that famous Paul Washer sermon. Verse 5 is kind of like him saying, Israel and Judah... I don't know why you're clapping, because I'm talking about you. You're the culprits. He says, For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. Why is the Lord coming forth? It's not to rescue Israel from captivity. It's not to judge the Assyrians for threatening Judah. No, it's because of the rebellion of God's covenant people, both in Judah in the south and Israel in the north. He's coming as a judge against the sins of his own covenant people. More specifically, he continues, what's the transgression of Jacob? 
Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? In our last sermon, we pointed out how Micah uses Samaria and Jerusalem as representatives of the northern and southern kingdoms as a whole. Samaria was the capital of Israel, and Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Remember, the the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of the north that kept the name Israel, and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And Micah uses the capital city of each kingdom to represent the kingdoms as a whole, because those cities had a lot of influence over the kingdoms. And on top of that, the kingdom of Israel had a lot of influence over the kingdom of Judah. The people of Judah would watch Israel and kind of follow along. And Israel was idolatrous from the beginning. They had King Jeroboam, who set up his own worship, and he set up his own holy days and his own priesthood and so on. And Judah followed along by setting up pagan altars and instituting false worship in God's temple. There's a parable in the book of Ezekiel that illustrates this history of Israel and Judah well. It's in chapter 23, so if you're interested in kind of seeing a summary of this, an inspired summary of this history, I would direct you there. But I'll I'll summarize it here for you. Um, In that parable, God says Israel and Judah are like two sisters. Israel is the older sister, and she lusted after the pagan Assyrians. And she gave herself to the Assyrian idols. So God gave her up to the Assyrians, and he let the Assyrians take Israel captive. He turned Israel over to their sins. And then Judah, the little sister, instead of looking at all of this and, 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 uh, and saying, I'm going to avoid the sins of Israel, of Israel, Judah follows after Israel and starts lusting after the pagans as well and becomes even worse than Israel. As we mentioned in our last sermon, the application here is that if God puts you in a position of influence, you have the duty, you have the responsibility to be a positive influence. This was true for Samaria that influenced Israel. This was true for Israel who influenced Jerusalem. And this was true for Jerusalem who influenced Judah and so on. But this is also true for parents. You have the moral responsibility to set a good example for your children. Let them hear you pray. Let them see your heart for the church. Let them see your love for the Lord and your love for other people. Set the example for them. This is also true for ministers and elders to their congregations. It's true for older siblings, to their younger siblings, and it's true for every person according to where God has placed you. Any influence you have ought to be used to influence others to love and serve the Lord. But there's a flip side to this as well. 
You have the responsibility as a child of God to guard what you allow to influence your own life. We're commanded as Christians to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we ought to judge all things by the standard of God's word. We ought not only, we ought to only allow what is good and acceptable and perfect and according to the will of God to have any power or sway over our lives. You can't allow yourself to be controlled or influenced by the allurements of the world like Samaria did with the Assyrians. The world is aggressively seeking to control your time, your money, your attention, your affection. It desperately wants to have supreme influence over your life. And it has no shortage of means to entice you to give it that control. This world is is like a theater of temptation. It seems to have an endless supply of of gadgets and entertainment and websites and, and movies and music that allow you to feed your deepest and darkest lusts. And their influence can so easily ensnare you and erode your zeal for the things of God. And if you look to these things, if the world begins to hold too much influence and have too much control over your life, you'll soon become indifferent in your walk with the Lord. Don't be deceived. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I'm not saying that entertainment is necessarily Sinful, but this is a word of caution. I think Samaria, Jerusalem, they give us this word of caution. Don't be high-minded. Don't think you're too good to get caught in the trap of worldliness and vanity. It can easily take hold of you if you're not careful. Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. We ought to be mindful also of the company that we keep. One thing we see in these verses is how contagious sin and ungodliness is. And Paul warns us, he says, evil company corrupts good manners. This is why when God gave his people the the land of Israel, he commanded them to drive out the pagans entirely. He didn't want his people to be enticed to sin in the way that the pagans sinned. So it's wise to be cautious of ungodly company. Some people think that developing strong and intimate relationships with unbelievers is the best way to bring them to Christ. I'm not saying that doesn't happen sometimes. But the opposite is usually the case. More often than not, they will draw you away from Christ. This is the pattern that we see in Proverbs 13 and verse 20. He that walketh with the wise men shall be wise, 
but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Matthew Henry warns us, he says, those we grow with, we are apt to grow like. Surround yourself by godly company. Matthew Henry says elsewhere, those who would keep their innocence must keep good company. Error and vice are infectious, and if we would avoid the contagion, we must keep clear of those who have taken it. We ought to be mindful of those that we allow to influence us. Our best and strongest friendships ought to be in the Lord. Only godly friends can give wise counsel. Only godly friends will encourage you to pursue true holiness. There's one thing that's clear from this text. It's that sin is infectious. It spreads like wildfire. And it's dangerous. It deserves the wrath of God. These are the reasons that God established church discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. If we allow scandalous sin to go unchecked, it can infect the whole body. Sin is contagious. It's dangerous. So be mindful of who or what you allow to influence you. But now we get to verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7, here we see the calamity. It's a description of the coming judgment of God. Therefore, I will make Samaria as an heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley. And I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. And all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof I will lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of an harlot. And they shall return to the hire of an harlot. What we see here is the destruction of Samaria. And particularly what's emphasized here is the destruction of of her false religion. Notice how the focus here is specifically on the first table offenses of God's covenant people. And what I mean by that is if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll see that the first four commandments have to do with our duties toward God. That's the first table of the law. The last six commandments have to do with our our duties toward men. That's the second table of the law. God focuses first and foremost on punishing their sins against God, their first table offenses. Their graven images will be beaten to pieces. Their idols will be laid desolate. The focus of God's judgment is on their infidelity to himself as their God. As you read through this book, you'll see a a plethora of sins that Micah will address. Sins of injustice and and prostitution and oppression and so on. But it starts, it emphasizes the judgment of God against the first table 
sins of the people. God cares first and foremost for the glory of his own name. But his glory had been disregarded by his people. If you remember last time, we we read from 2 Kings 16 about King Ahaz paying off the Assyrians with gold and silver that he stole from the temple of God. And how he had his priest make a copy of, of the Assyrian altar, and he put that in the temple of God, bringing pagan worship into the house of God. Just think, things got so bad that Micah called the holy city of Jerusalem the high place of Judah in verse 5. The high places were known for idolatry and false worship. And Micah says, that's what Jerusalem has become. That's what the city of God had become, a place of idolatry and false worship. God's glory had been completely disregarded by his people, and that was their greatest sin. So God places priority on their first table offenses. Their idols, their false gods, their graven images, their blasphemy, their neglect of the Sabbath, their false worship. These are the sins that God considers most heinous. It wasn't the child sacrifice, although we know that that was going on at the time. It wasn't any of the social issues of the day, although there were major issues. And and don't get me wrong, these are major sins. These are sins that we should address, and Micah will address. But the worst sin of all was their neglect of honoring God as he commanded them to do in the first four commandments. By nature, we tend to consider sins against one another as the worst kinds of sins. We tend to think that murder and abortion and rape and genocide are the worst sins. We tend to place a higher emphasis on the rights of men. Don't get me wrong, these are terrible sins that we ought to take very seriously. But we should prioritize what God prioritizes. Sins against God are more heinous than sins against men. Sins against God will do more to provoke divine wrath against a person or a city or a nation than the sins against men will. God often turns a nation over to sin among themselves as a consequence for their neglect of honoring God as they ought. This is exactly what we see in Romans chapter 1. The ungodly changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. They turned to idolatry. And then what happened? Wherefore, God gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. They sinned against God in the first table, and therefore God gave them up to sin against each other in the second table. There's a lot of talk in our day about engaging 
and confronting the sins of our culture. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But too many Christians and too many pastors are so consumed with talking about our nation's second table offenses that they pay little to no attention to what God cares about most. Our fidelity to God in our doctrine and in our worship is the primary issue. It's not secondary to our need to deal with abortion or homosexuality or transgenderism or whatever else. These are sins that we can and should confront, but the pattern of the Bible tells us that they are not the root of the problem. It's our blatant disregard for God that's the reason we're having to deal with these things in the first place. Our neglect for upholding the first table of the law is the primary reason for our own calamity. So if you want to promote social change in our nation, if you want to see morality upheld in society, if you want to truly reform our culture, then you ought to pray first and foremost that the first table of God's law would be upheld in our nation. But first pray that it be upheld in your own homes. And most importantly, pray that it would be upheld in your own hearts. Because that's where true reformation begins. Lastly, we see Micah's cry in verses 8 and 9. Therefore, I will wail and howl, I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragon and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable. For it has come unto Judah. He has come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. What we have in these verses is Micah's response to his own message. He felt the weight and the reality of what he was preaching. He knew that these weren't some empty threats. These were real, serious threats against God's people. And the people's hearts were hard. They wouldn't turn from their sins. Remember, Micah spent 30 to 40 years preaching this message, and he saw very little fruit for the vast majority of his ministry. But he prayed for Israel and Judah. He cried for their redemption, and he pleaded for them to repent, yet they wouldn't do it. And since they wouldn't do it, since their hearts were so hard against the Lord, and they wouldn't apply his remedy, judgment became inevitable. Their wound was incurable. Micah shows himself to be a godly prophet in these verses. He demonstrates a heart for the people to whom he preached. This is what a godly preacher does. He doesn't just tell people that God's judgment is coming and then forgets about them. He earnestly pleads with them. And then he goes before the face of God and intercedes for them, begging for divine mercy on their behalf. 
In this way, Micah was a picture of the perfect prophet, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who not only made a declaration of hope for his people, but he became the hope for his people. He poured out not only his heart before the Father for his people, he poured out his own blood for their redemption. He took the judgment of God against the sins of his people upon himself. He drank the cup of divine wrath for his people. And having been crucified and risen from the dead and ascended on high, now he sits at the right hand of God, interceding for them before the Father. So take refuge in him. So that when judgment comes, you'll have nothing to fear. When you see Micah in these verses, catch a glimpse of our Savior. Catch a glimpse of the one who wept for sinners. Catch a glimpse of the one who pleaded with sinners. Catch a glimpse of the one who died for sinners. Amen.